Hey Rebels, today I'm sitting down with Dr. Nick Carlton, a psychology professor from the University of Regina. As you may know, I've hosted a few other professors and academics on the show, and they kept recommending Dr. Nick is someone I have to bring on next, someone I have to talk to. One of the things I know is when I'm introducing beer to new people, people who haven't tried that style or beer for the very first time yet, I have to be very specific and precise in my language or I can turn people off. I can, in a sense, prime a person for the way they will taste the beer and experience the beer before I even put it the glass in front of them. I've noticed if I used words like dark and earthy or dank versus tropical and hoppy or chocolatey and roasty versus burnt and ashy, I can elicit a very specific reaction from the person drinking that style of beer for the first time. Even if it's the exact same beer, Sometimes I'll put a beer in front of someone and say nothing and just say, just tell me what you think without any prejudice whatsoever. I'm hoping to ask Dr. Nick why that happens. And if it's a good or a bad thing, maybe it's a little unethical, but maybe he can give me a few tips for beer drinkers to help avoid them becoming primed when they try to experience beer in a certain way and just help people trust their own sensory experience of beer, which is the fun of discovering something new when you're trying craft beer for the first time. Dr. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. How's it going? It's really well, really well. So before we get into all the psychology stuff, I'm not going to prime you on this beer, but we've got Kick-Ass Coffee Stout by Arrowhead Brewing in Invermere, BC. Oh, great. Have you heard of Arrowhead before? I have not. They're a nice little mom and pop kind of outfit. Real uh, feather in the cap, I think, for the small town. Nice. So cheers. Nice. Cheers. That smells lovely. That's very nice. You know, I think it was maybe sitting in the fridge a little too long, because my recollection of it is much more aggressive. This, this is very smooth. This is very light. You can taste sort of the, the hints of chocolate and coffee, or at least I can, and, uh, and it's very light. I like this very much. Yeah. I'm a big fan of dark beers, though, and, that, and this one is nice. This one, but it's, but it's, it's not heavy. Like, it's light and, and pretty refreshing. If you told me this is a brown, I might mistake it for a, a coffee brown. Oh, really? But... They call it a stout. The color is a little bit lighter. It's not as dark as I'm used to, but the head retention is very nice. Mm -hmm. That coffee aroma is subtle, but pleasant and present. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I, can, I, could, drink a, I could drink a healthy amount of that. <laughs> or perhaps an unhealthy amount of that, depending. I think I'd call this maybe a breakfast beer. Yeah. You know, invitation. go nicely with breakfast and you know, a little pancakes, some eggs. We'd be good to go with the beer, right? <laughs> be a good fit. Thumbs up, thumbs down? Thumbs up. I'd, I'd drink this one. This is very nice. And I, I plan to continue. <laughs> <laughs> we had one of the staffers from Arrowhead Brewing actually come and work with us for a little while. She worked as a server while her boyfriend was in town. And now I think she's back in BC working back at Arrowhead. But um, I asked her what her favorite was, if it was the this kick-ass coffee stout, because that really resonated with me. And she goes, no, no, I'm into the ESB, the English Special Bitters. Oh. And I did try it, and I actually... I think that was that brewery's best beer that I had tasted at the time. This would be number two. All right. But still good. Absolutely. So were the bitters super bitter on that one? No, it's a really malty, English approachable, easy drinker. Smooth, sort of rich. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Not smooth like a lager because it, it was a ale, but it was still a very nice beer. I mean, if we want to be precise. 
Tell me a little bit about your work. What's your background? I'm a, I'm a clinical psychologist, uh, so I do some treatment. I do uh, research, though, uh, with a, a variety of different uh, groups. I've, uh, I've taught a lot of the, the psych classes uh, over the years now. I've been doing uh, psychology in one way or another uh, since I started taking classes in, uh, in 96 or 97 now, I guess. Uh, so that's a little ways away. Um, most of the research that I do now is focused on uh, trying to find ways to support our public safety personnel, so our police, our firefighters, our paramedics, corrections, communications officials, border services. So we try and find ways to, to provide them with better care and better support for their mental health. Uh, is that PTSD or what does that mean? Certainly some of it's PTSD, absolutely. Uh, so PTSD is the one that people are most familiar with. Uh, but the most common disorder that, uh, that we've identified that they meet criteria for is actually major depression. Uh, but PTSD is a very, very close second for a lot of them. Is depression because of the nature of the work? We think so. We ask a, it's a tall order what we ask from our public safety personnel. So uh, we depend on them for everything uh, with respect to our protection and our safety. When we pick up a phone and call 911, we want somebody on the other end. And as soon as possible, we want somebody to show up and save us from whatever nightmare it is that, uh, that we're currently experiencing. And so we ask them to rush in uh, to, to protect us. And, they do that and provide that protection for all of us 24-7, so that's a tall order. Is it kind of the mental scar tissue of confronting maybe what could be that person's worst day of their life every single day over and over again? Certainly can be, so yeah, so for any one of us when we talk about things like PTSD, I might encounter a, an event that might meet criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder for me, but it could be a, a major motor vehicle accident, for example, that I'm in. And so that could be particularly problematic. And for the most part, we all understand, well, yeah, if you was in a bad car accident, we can understand why you might avoid getting in a car. We could understand why you might have trouble with, with driving thereafter. The thing we, we often forget, though, is that for our public safety personnel, they show up and they manage my car accident, but then later that same day, they manage your car accident and two or three others, and they do that day in and day out. So they're exposed to a lot of human suffering and a lot of challenges. Uh, they're, they also receive a lot of rewards, though. A lot of them comment about how rewarding it can be to help people. That's part of why we want to make sure that they're as protected as possible for, for their own mental health so that they can be there to enjoy their careers and, and to keep protecting all the rest of us. That, if there's a lot of high turnover, then you're losing a lot of good experience, a lot of good training. That's also true, right? The, the experience and the expertise, these are highly qualified professionals that, uh, that, we, that we depend on for their expertise and their experience and, and their dependability in general, right? We depend on them to be there. What else are you studying? So we study a, a lot of different, uh, well, I get to study a lot of different things. I've studied things like attention, for example, and what we attend to and what we focus on. So uh, when you mentioned at the beginning, uh, you were talking about perception, sensation. That's a, that's a really fun area. Uh, and it's a really complicated area. So uh, one that we can do even, even remotely here, I, I think through a podcast, is this. Uh, we can be cued and primed quite readily, and, uh, and it can be fun to do that at some point. So for example, and we're about to cue everybody uh, that's listening, and you and me as well, uh, if I say, uh, think about your tongue for a second, right? Up until that moment, you probably weren't thinking about your tongue. But now you can definitely feel your tongue in your mouth, right? You, you know whether or not you can still feel some of the beer and still taste a little bit here. And I've increased the probability that both you and I are going to bite our tongue because we're paying attention, right? So when we cue ourselves, when we focus on something in particular, when our attention is focused, it changes not only what we pay attention to, but how we pay attention to it. And that can change everything for us because it changes our whole experience. So. 
I'll give you another example. So, uh, so if you're deeply involved in doing something. So in my youth, I used to play computer games all the time. I, I loved them. And you could sit down and I'd play a good game and you know, it'd be 3 o'clock in the afternoon and all of a sudden it was 10 o'clock at night. You just lost the seven hours. They're just gone. But you don't notice that you know, your back's getting sore. You're, you can't feel your legs anymore because you've been sitting in the chair. On the other hand, if I'm doing something that I'm not enjoying, I might notice that my back is getting sore and I can you know, feel my legs complaining after two or three minutes. So what we attend to, whether we're enjoying it, whether we're excited by it, it changes everything about our experience. What are some of the novel pieces that you've, you've discovered? What are some of the, something you could look to and say, hey, we discovered this and it was interesting in terms of as relates to perceptions. Sure, so some of the stuff that we've paid attention to and, and that I've had a chance is the, is the stuff you like, you seem to spend more time with. So the, the interesting thing is if I like it and or I think I like it, I'm more likely to spend more time with it. And the converse is also true. If I spend more time with it, I'm more likely to like it. So novelty is not necessarily always our friend. So when I was, uh, when I was much younger, uh, I, I actually, I love stout beers. Uh, they're, they're some of my favorite beers. But I remember uh, in, my, uh, in my misspent youth, uh, in my late teens, certainly I'm sure I was 19 or 20 at the time, uh, tasting my very first Guinness and going, this is terrible. Who would ever drink this thing, right? Like, it's awful. But over time, when you drink more and more of it, you get, well, I, I'd like to think I either got smarter or more experienced, one or the other. You get better, right? And you can taste that all of a sudden there's richness to those flavors there. And, and our, our tastes become more diverse and, and we become better. And so we become, you know, I can taste now in a, in a good stout. I can taste the coffee. So it's not just a, a, an onslaught. But that's in part because I've matured with my taste buds, but also because I've matured with my drinking. So now I can enjoy a wider range of different flavors. So I can say, yeah, the hoppy beer was nice. The citrus beer was nice. The stout beer was nice. And I can try all of them at, you know, not necessarily one right after the other. But <laughs> the first time I had a barrel-aged sour was with Mark and Jamie. And we were at Evan in Evan's basement. They're the three founders, three of the four founders of Rebellion. And they gave me a, a sour, and it was, like, aggressive. And I had, a, like, a little sip, and I was trying to be very polite, but I was like, oh, my God, I, I can't drink this. And now I'm like, oh, I love sours. Give me the next one. Well, because you got better, right? You, the first time you take a hit of something new with respect to, to beer or, uh, well, any experience, but in this case, beer. IPAs. IPAs are a great example. Your first experience with them, probably not your best experience with them. <laughs> probably your worst, actually. But over time, and especially if you sit with experts. So when I get a chance to sit with experts like yourself who can actually say, okay, so here's what we might find. Uh, so if, we, if you start and you have me blind tasted, I like that myself best, right? Because I can sort of blind taste it. But then if you talk to an expert who can actually start to really tease that apart and go, okay, so I get that you tasted the coffee here, Nick, but... Did you also taste this and this? Can you taste the, the, the chocolate? Can you taste the, the other flavors in there? And then I go back and I taste it. And I go, yeah, I, I think I can. And the first time, maybe I'm fooling myself a little bit, right? Because I prime myself. Because if you said, Nick, this is going to taste like a sour, now I'm expecting a sour. So my sour taste buds are more activated, right? I'm paying attention to them in the same way as when I said your tongue, your tongue nerves were more activated. Now you say the sour ones, so now they're more activated. And I taste it and I go, I don't know, Matt, that, that doesn't taste real sour to me. And in fact, because you told me it would taste sour, there's a good chance it'll taste sweeter than it would normally, right? Because it's not what I'm expecting. So I'm expecting sour, I'm like, and then I taste it and I go, it's that whipsaw 
Very much so, yeah. Because you get the, what we call a refractory effect. You get the opposite effect of what you were expecting because it was counterintuitive. It was the opposite of your expectation. <laughs> We've done that where we have blind taste tests of what, five or six beers. And as you get to the end, it's really hard to pick out those pieces because you hit all that range of flavor. Your taste buds like get exhausted. They do. Yeah, in fact, any of your senses can get exhausted. And so your taste buds are no different. So uh, it's sort of like... Uh, one you can do is, uh, if you've ever watched a light for too long, not that nobody should do this, it's bad for your eyes, but you watch the light for too long, you stare at it, and then you blink and you close your eyes and you look at a blank wall and you can still see the light. It's your senses getting exhausted. Really? So they're hyper, they're hyper set for something. <laughs> so that's part of why, for example, if you go through a night and you're drinking, uh, if you're drinking a bunch of uh, stouts or you're, drinking, or you're drinking something nice, like a rich caramelly, sort of beautiful heavy beer that's nice and caramel, and well, I like it anyway, a malty set, you drink that and then all of a sudden you have a sour at the end, that sour is not going to taste like a normal sour. That sour is going to taste like you got slapped with a lemon, right? <laughs> it's going to be rough. It's going to be a bigger <laughs> punch in the mouth. That's right. So in terms of how we can apply this to society, how is this useful to us as humans, knowing this information? Well, part of it is, is useful because if we understand that context is, is, context is always king or queen, depending on your perspective, right? Context rules. So whatever you're expecting, that's probably what's going to happen. And it's going to influence what happens to you. So at a, at a specific level, if I'm expecting that I'm going to walk into a situation and it's going to be fun or it's going to be exciting or it's going to make me happy, the odds of it fulfilling those expectations are much higher. In the same way, if I'm walking into a situation and I'm expecting it's going to be lousy, I'm expecting it's going to be crappy, I'm expecting things are going to go wrong, now I'm going to be cued to everything that goes wrong, right? So uh, it's... Uh, if I walk into the pub and all of a sudden I get beer spilled all over me, well, first, I'm sad about the loss of the beer. Secondly, uh, I got a couple of ways to react to that, right? I can go, oh, the whole night is ruined. It's, uh, it's terrible. Maybe. Or you're probably going to get brought a new, uh, probably a fresh beer on the house. You're, it's going to be a funny story. And so, yeah, it's lousy, but it's a funny story and we're good to go. So beer. that sounds like a resilience piece or a Zen Buddha kind of thing you got rocking. Yeah, yeah, it can be very much like that, right? It's uh, So uh, some things are just lousy. Some things are, and they're straight up and it's lousy. And you go, yeah, you know what, that's crappy. So it's not about all sunshine, but it is about paying attention to the idea that what you expect and how you interpret that, that sensation, that perception, that influences your reality. That's interesting that you bring that up because I've been thinking about the difference between passive acceptance of sensory input versus mindfulness. When I'm trying to learn something, say I go to my martial arts class, I train Aikido, I walk into it saying, I'm gonna to try to be mindful of what I'm being taught and try to absorb as much information as possible. Um, I can tell when kids are paying attention to me when I'm speaking to them in kids class because their heads kind of tilt, you know? <laughs> so it's interesting that you, you wrap these all together. It's not just beer, so. I don't know where I was going with that story. <laughs> That's all right. It's, you're right. It's, it's not just, it, it does all work together, right? It's the same human. It's the same body. So all the different elements of our reality, from what we sense to what we perceive to how we expect and how we engage with it, it, it all works together. And we have some control on how we're going to deal with that. How is this used unethically? Like, I, my initial thought would be like, oh, Facebook and politics, but... <laughs> yeah, Facebook and politics are probably a pretty good place to have a look at that, right? So... Uh, when we want to change other people's behavior, the more we know and the more we understand about the people and how behavior changes and sensation and perception, the, the more we can influence people. So you could certainly use it unethically. 
uh, or at least immorally, if you wanted to, 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 to focus on different things, right? So if I frame sort of like a classic question, how much do you like, so let me give you an example. So if, I, if you were to say to me, Nick, how much do you like this beer? From a little bit to a lot. Well, how I framed the question changes how your answer how you're going to answer, right? Because I didn't give you the option then to tell me that you hated the beer, or you didn't give me the option to say I hated the beer. You said, do you like it a little or do you like it a lot? Well, no matter what then, I'm telling you that I liked it a little. So if you ask 100 people that question about this beer and you and they all go, well, you know, they all at least liked it a little, then you can say as the if you wanted to advertise, 100 people liked it at least a little and like, you know, so many liked it a lot. All right, technically it's true what you said, but you kind of skewed the data there a little, right? Back when I was studying politics, we called that framing the question that's, or pushing the poll. Yeah, that's exactly what, that's what we call it in psychology too, framing the question, absolutely. <laughs> so now you're pushing the poll and, eh. and we could do that on a low level, uh, like a low importance level, depending on your perspective. You can do that with beers, but we can do that all the way up to, to anything else that happens in our lives. So you got to watch who's asking the question and why. Right? I'm such a purist, I would say, well, the data is flawed, throw it out, it's no good. Um, even when we were creating our own uh, customer survey this year for Rebellion, before we fired it out, I said, is this priming people or are we going to get accurate data? Are we going to get usable, functional information that we can analyze? And it was really, it was really tough. Like, it's, research is really hard, especially that, and, and you're right to be careful about the priming. And I'm delighted to hear that people are, are still paying attention to those things after they leave campuses. That's great. <laughs> it's, but and and I mean with uh, with rebellion, I'm a bit biased because I really like rebellion beer. But <laughs> but there's already a prime there, right? So if you so if somebody says to me, I've got a rebellion beer, I've got an inherent prime there because I'm expecting it to be a good beer, right? And so we can't always escape it, but we can try and minimize it because that's how we get the best data to do the best job. Whether it's creating better beers, looking after customers, protecting politics or protecting mental health. It's always best when we have the, the most unbiased data possible. We were looking at um, stats for American, the American craft beer industry, but it also, as it relates to Canada, there's very similar actions going on. And they were saying consumers a few years ago used to be really into diversity and were really promiscuous in their brand choices and what styles they wanted. And now they found that number is diminishing and people are actually focusing on specific brands less likely to purchase outside their preferred one to three craft beer brands. Interesting. I guess that doesn't necessarily surprise me. There was a study we recently finished uh, that, that was published a little while ago where we were checking about how well people liked, uh, how well they managed uncertainty. So there's a lot of, of data that we have right now that says that human beings in general, we don't like uncertainty very much. We like to know. And then you hear that in pop culture, right? It doesn't matter how bad it is, it's better to know, or at least now I know, right? So we like to know stuff. And what we saw was there's been an increase in how much distress or how intolerant we are of uncertainty over the last few decades. And we think it's related to things like increases in anxiety and increases in, in challenges. And so as people have more and more difficulty or more and more uncertainty in their lives, or and as they are less able to tolerate that uncertainty, it means we're going to be more and more likely, I would suggest, and this is a hypothesis, right? Now we're, now we're extending it a little bit. <laughs> I'd suggest it's more likely that I'm going to be brand secure and that I'm going to go, you know what? Because with the limited resources and time that we all have, am I going to try something that I really don't know anything about if I'm looking for a good time, if I'm looking for a pleasurable experience, or am I going to try the one that I know and trust? Because there's a lot more risk with the one that I don't know 
than the one that I do know. So if I'm going to go to the if I'm going to go and buy a beer, I'm going to buy a beer from a group that I trust already because you've got limited dollars, limited time. You can have beer. You're going to pick one that you know. Maybe now and again you might try and step out a little bit, but if we're all having more difficulty with uncertainty, which is what our data is showing, then we're going to look for certainty wherever we can. And where can I find more information about that uncertainty piece? Like, what is? Where did you find it? So we found that using a, using a, law, a bunch of large-scale, what we call big data. We did a big data design and we collected uh, data samples from, the, from a whole pile of studies uh, that had been done over the last 20-some-odd years. And so the, the publication now, it's, uh, it's freely available. That one's, on, that one's online. I can give you a link for it and people can read it. Uh, we noticed that it also seemed to be associated with cell phone use, which people may or may not be happy to hear, right? But it looks like the more cell phones we had, that correlates with the more difficulty we have with uncertainty. Why? Well, we had a few ideas about this. Uh, and one idea is this, before we had cell phones. So back in my day, uh, when I was growing up, if you wanted to know something, you had to wait. And you had to sit with the uncertainty. So you had to be exposed to it, right? You couldn't just pick up a phone and try something, right? If you want to know if your loved ones were safe, if you wanted to check out who was winning, you had to have some patience. But now, I don't have to practice that. I don't have to practice having that waiting period. I don't have to practice patience. I don't have to practice uncertainty. You don't flex that muscle. You don't flex the muscle. Now, if I want to know, I click the phone and I get to know instantly, which means that when I can't know instantly, or if I feel suddenly like I'm uncertain, I'm not practiced flexing that muscle. Yeah, exactly. You get the heart, you get, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And so we've got a whole group of us, myself included, that depend on their phones for that instant gratification, that instant response, and that may not be the healthiest thing in the world for us. It may be better to have a little bit of delay now and again. You know, that's funny you mentioned that because when I was studying journalism, they were finding the difference between people who only watch TV for news versus people who watched uh, or listened to radio or consumed print. The people who consumed print were less anxious and more able to have a, a deeper nuanced grasp of an issue versus people who just watched the screaming, shouting, talking heads on TV. They were less informed, felt less secure about the world and were more fearful of things like an aggressive government or law enforcement or somebody robbing them at the bank and then they were like or they went to the print people and they were they were less afraid of what was going on around the world more hopeful for things in the future and just generally more optimistic that makes perfect sense to me and it fits with what we were talking about with perception and sensation and framing right so on the news, if you're watching the news media, I remember when they first came out with uh, with the 24-hour news cycle, right? When they a news channel, and I remember people mocking the idea that everybody would watch news 24 hours. They do watch news 24 hours, and in fact, it's sold like gangbusters. But they are selling something, so it's not that is also a framed thing. They're selling this ongoing consumption that you want to have, and you can do a lot more with media like multimedia than you can with print or with radio. So you can get people excited. You can show graphic images. You can but you're framing the world in one way that gets people to keep coming back for more and more and more consumption. And as it turns out, it doesn't look like, there's, a, there's a site, several sites now dedicated to something called Happy News, but they're not nearly as popular because we prefer, we have a, 
There's some people that argue we have an attentional bias for things that are threatening, that we are more likely to pay attention to threats. And evolutionarily, that makes sense, right? The guys up on the savanna who ignored all the threats, they didn't get to procreate. Their kids aren't here, right? The, all the ones that were like, there's a jiggling bush over there. I should probably leave it alone. They got to procreate and their kids are still here, right? So those of us that favored fear, we're all still here. Those of us that didn't, probably not so much. So now you've got a media empire that's feeding you this constant reinforcing pattern of fear. And if that's what you're seeing all the time and that's what you believe the world is, you're gonna be, uh, there's every reason anyway for us to expect you to be more anxious and that, it should make intuitive sense, right? Okay, we've talked about priming for beer, we've talked about those short circuiting pieces and now the, that fear piece. How do we defeat that? How do we beat that? Well, I think you actually said it best when you talked about mindfulness and you talked about paying attention. Part of it is paying attention to what you're being bombarded with. Part of it is paying attention to what you're exposing yourself to. But that's exhausting. It is exhausting. Absolutely. Constant mindfulness is exhausting. So that's why I like to set up little barriers for myself. And that's probably what the guys that are men, or men and women that are choosing the, the, the narrower craft beers are doing as well. So in all of those cases, so I don't watch a lot of news media. In fact, I watch almost no news uh, with respect to media. I'll get it uh, in the print and things like that. And I get little summaries, things like that. I try and reduce my screen time where I can. I try and, and I've set up things that I buy and that I don't buy. And I set up rules in my life to sort of establish, here's some certainty and some parameters so that I don't have to pay attention to that anymore. The more of that we set up, quite often, the less anxious we can be. So I don't have to worry about 15 different brands of beer. I can go and go, well, Rebellion's got the lentil for my partner and she'll like that and I'll take the Imperial Stout and we'll do this and we're good. And I know I'm safe there. So you can do mindfulness in pieces and then set up rules to try and help protect yourself overall uh, with respect to what you're being exposed to. And if it's something new, keep in mind, you don't, you're being primed the whole time. And sold. And sold in many cases, absolutely. <laughs> Do you think that's why people are taking Facebook breaks? I, I think so, and I, I think it's a good idea. Lots of the data that we have so far suggests that media breaks are not a bad idea, and, and Facebook in and of itself is not a bad idea. It's essentially the highlight reel of somebody's life, right? Very rarely, uh, I mean, some people do, but most of the time you're not putting up the, I had a mundane day today, nothing exciting happened, it was a boring day, I went to work, I did my work, I came home. No one cares, right? That doesn't get a thousand likes or a million likes and go viral, right? The, this terrible thing happened or this wonderful thing happened. That's where we get it. But those are extreme ends and that polarizes us. Let's, so let, let's, be, let's be a little calmer, a little more nuanced in things. Let's, let's enjoy the subtle flavors that go along with life as opposed to, you know, going, oh my God, that's a sour, I never want to taste it again. Or, oh, I only want to taste the, the sweetest possible beers available. Let's be nuanced and careful with these things. <laughs> well, I should let you know, since you said you're a dark beer fan, we we just finished brewing a Belgian dark strong. It's going to be coming out in the fall. And it had like, I think, over 100 pounds of Belgian candy. Well, yeah. that sounds like my kind of beer. Candy syrup. <laughs> Boom. And Dave said it was burping up all over the floor because the Belgian yeast is so happy and aggressive. Oh, They're nice. like, oh, man, this is making such a mess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. That sounds like my kind of beer, see? And already I'm primed. I'm thinking I'm going to like it. You're excited about it. I'm excited about it, which means it's more likely to taste that much better for me when I get there. <laughs> Here's some more priming. It's really, really rare. We almost never do it because it's super complex and takes a long time. Um, 
and it's going to be something unique because most of the other breweries in Saskatchewan aren't doing beers like that. And so you take pre-orders for this in advance, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we did do some reservations for wholesalers because when they get wind of it, they're like, we'll take X amount. You know, um, I'm not going to name names, but one of the biggest uh, corporate private retailers in our province, they constantly are like, give us more, give us more, give us more. And we said, oh, hold on. We have to be fair and give it to have some left over for everybody else. But they're just so enthusiastic and they said their customer base is so passionate about getting it in their hands. So. Oh, I can understand why. That sounds <laughs> fabulous to me. <laughs> well, thank you for your time on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Rebels, in case you didn't know, we're now an affiliate member of the Saskatchewan Podcast Network. If you're into podcasts and you're looking for great content produced right here in our province, the Sask Podcast Network is a great one-stop shop to discover local stories to listen to. As always, if you want to find the latest news about Rebellion Brewing, be sure to check us out on the Facebook, Instagram, and Untapped. I'm going to include some of the links that Dr. Nick promised us in the show notes so you can check it out and read a little bit more for yourself. As always, thank you for joining the Rebellion.